Hi, everyone. This is Nick Fletcher, and I'm a pediatric orthopedic surgeon at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University. This is a podcast that has been developed with the idea of learning how current thought leaders and visionaries within our field have gotten where they've got and how they view the future of education, of research, of clinical care and its delivery, and really just to have the opportunity to pick the brains of people who I respect and think highly of. My third guest today will be Todd Milbrandt. Todd is Associate Professor at the Mayo Clinic and a good friend of mine. We both trained at Texas Scottish Rite Hospital, and he subsequently went into a year of practice before settling in Kentucky for nearly a decade and then coming up to Mayo. Todd is a tireless person. I think one of the things that we've seen in the first couple of episodes is how the people at the top have a tendency to be able to get a tremendous amount of work done in a seemingly limited number of hours. Todd is no different. He has a tremendous research portfolio. He is a great educator and has won awards as a teacher at both Mayo and at Kentucky. And he is a leader within POSNA, currently taking on the role of head of the IPOS and is certainly on track to join the presidential line at some point. He's been a very powerful and impactful leader in numerous committees at a very high level at POSNA and is somebody who I've really enjoyed the opportunity to talk with. I think he's incredibly down to earth. He's a lot of fun to spend any amount of time with, and I really looked forward to the opportunity to talk to him today. This discussion is wide ranging, of course, but I think I tried to focus a little bit more on his outlook on education in addition to research, but certainly the role that POSNA has in educating our future generations and how that will look and how IPOS plays a role in that. So please enjoy our discussion. Again, this is always a joy for me and hopefully you are enjoying it as well. We are currently sitting at the Westin Hotel in Memphis. And we're actually right across the street from the FedEx Forum, and Chris Stapleton is playing tonight, so there may be a little bit of music in the background. What? But Chris Stapleton is playing? He's literally right there. No like way! Yeah, maybe we'll, maybe we'll go yeah. like, figure out how to get in there. <laughs> I was thinking about it. I'm a pretty big fan. I am too! Yeah, so. But so I'm here with, with Todd, and we just got teaching the first day of the post course. So we'll talk a little bit about that as we get into it, but it's a good time. The post course is a... A course that's put on sort of collaboratively through POSNA and some other organizations, and it's a great educational experience. And so we're going to focus a bit today on education. So, but I, I do want to give the listeners a little bit of background on you. So you grew up in the Northwest, yes? Well, so I, it's very complicated, okay. my my backstory. I like complicated. Um, yeah. But not mysterious. Okay. It's complicated, but not mysterious. <laughs> okay. So my father worked for the VA hospital system. Okay. And because of that, we moved like an army person would move, but not just we stayed all domestically. So I lived in eight different places before I was a senior in high school. I was born in Buffalo, New York, and that's where my parents were from, where they all grew up. And then we quickly left when I was two. We would go out for summers back there, but quite frankly, it was, you know, it's where my grandparents lived, but I have never really lived there. We moved to Boston and Florida, and I spent time in both Houston and San Antonio, moved to Indiana, and then I went to junior high in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in the shadow of the University of Michigan, and then I went to high school in Helena, Montana, and that's kind of where the Northwest part of my story started, because I went to high school there, and then I was interested in staying in the Northwest to go to college. I went to college in Tacoma, Washington at the University of Puget Sound, 
And then my parents, you know, they kept moving. So they moved from Montana to Virginia. Yeah. And so when I applied to medical school, my in-state medical school uh, was the University of Virginia. And I was always looking for a bargain. And, not a bad um, school, but yeah, yeah, but it was yeah. good. I think it worked out. Yeah. And so I moved to the East Coast, which I had never, the Atlantic Coast, which I had never lived in before, ever, even right. though it was my, quote, in-state place. But it, we stayed there for 10 years in Charlottesville and loved it. You got I mean, a master's there, right? I did yeah. get a master's as a part of my orthopedic training. So I went to four years of medical school, and then they, you know, then I stayed there for residency, the deal was they, they it was kind of a funny thing in the match what happened is that they were accidentally granted too many people one year for the match it was a snafu and then the next year they had to really downsize in order to keep their complement the same and so they basically took themselves out of the match and then just matched a couple people from their home program kind of as a handshake and that was one of those people but the deal was is that i had to spend a year in the lab yeah and as a part of that year in the lab I wanted to get a master's degree out of it. And so I have a master's in surgical research, which yep. I don't even... May not exist may elsewhere. May not exist <laughs> elsewhere. But for me, it was a way for me to... I mean, I had to defend my thesis through yes. my basic science project that I was assigned to during that year. But, you know, the funny thing is, um, I know we're going to talk about education, but from a, from a career standpoint, you know, I was a PGY2 at that point. And not really that excited about being in a lab. I had done some undergraduate research and liked it, but it wasn't like I was really seeking that opportunity out. But I was seeking an orthopedic uh, residency position yeah. out. And so I took it and said, well, I'm going to make the best of it. But that really defined, like if I could pick a few things in my life that defined my career, that was one of them. Yeah. Because I spent that whole year in the lab learning the language of the PhDs, learning what they had to go through, and learning the orthopedic basic science tools that they had to investigate cartilage and bone. You know, at the time it was PCR, you know, RT-PCR, but now it's, you know, QPCR, other ways to look at signaling for both cartilage and bone that I never would have spent that much time if I was just a clinical kind of orthopedic resident. And so because of that, then when I started my career, it gave me a bit of a different facet to what I brought to the table to an academic center. And so it, it, it helped me in the end because then I started a basic science part of my career early on because I wanted, you know, I was able to go over and knock on a PhD's door and say, okay, this is what I want to do. These yep. are the tools I think we got to use. What do you think? Instead of just like, I'm an orthopedist. I want a project. I want a project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what can we do? So, I mean, I, I think that, you know, like I said, of the kind of key moments in my life that define what my career is now, that was one of the bigger ones. Which is kind of fun, you know? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. So the two prior podcasts we've done, one with Mike Vitale and one with John Schenecker, they both made the same comment without, I think, hearing the other one talk about it. So Mike said he is a MPH. And he yeah. said, you know, it helps get me in the door when I'm talking with a statistician, helps me understand the statistical approaches that they're using. John Schenecker obviously has a PhD and speaks that yeah. language pretty well. But he said the same thing. You know, when he's speaking with high-level scientists, he can hold his own. And so it's an interesting thought. And, you know, without sort of that background, when I was looking up your research productivity and your experience that you've had, you've got a pretty good balance of clinical and basic science research, especially for a guy who doesn't have a PhD and who didn't like what doesn't have a full running lab at all times, but you've been able to build a lot of collaborative efforts, it looks like. Well, I think that for me, the fun part of science and the fun part of clinical medicine is team building. Right. Yeah. And so 
I really get excited, uh, just like this post course, for example, where I can pull the talent that I know from all these different exposures and put them in one room because I know that they're going to either produce educationally or produce from a scientific standpoint. And then I just get to, you know, I can facilitate that conversation and watch it spin. Yeah. And the same thing happens to me in basic science in that I go there, I can then meet with their postdoc or their PhD student and explain my clinical project and still be involved and have enough understanding of what they're doing to say, you know, that result, you know, when you bring back analysis, that doesn't really fit. What do you think was going on? Yep. But I love that part of everything, yep. education, research, and even my clinical care, quite frankly, with my partner, Dr. Larson, yep. when we started this, you know, vertebral body tethering project together and that journey, again, it's a team that we've built with our general surgeon you know, those are my favorite moments in my job. When yeah. I'm kind of slogging it out all by myself at my desk, you know, cold up in my office, I'll get that work done. But yeah. that's not my, those aren't my joy moments. My yep. joy moments are trying to be collaborative. So anyway, I think that that is my strength. My strength is not like John Schenecker who can think up this amazing idea and then be able to kind of organize people. About. Mine is I've got ideas. I know that you have this knowledge. Let's work together and we can solve that. Well, problem. we all have our own strong points. And that's, exactly. you know, that's sort of how you leverage yours. Right. Well, and so, you know, knowing where your career went after residency, because we obviously ended up at the same place in Dallas together. Yeah. I think as a team building exercise, a year at Texas Scottish Rite probably is, uh, I mean, there may be some that are close, but it, it is truly unparalleled in terms of the fact that my wife knew all of the other spouses and the, and you know, we went to over to people's houses every week for dinner. And by the end of the year, it's a family. And I think that, you know, moving then to Atlanta for me, we've tried to sort of replicate that a little bit internally. You sort of did the same by going with a bunch of TSRH people to Kentucky. That's right. right? Yeah. And, yeah. And yeah. The, the, my first job, you know, we can talk about this yeah. too, but we were talking about it today at the post course is that, your first job may or may not work out. Yeah. And my first job did not. And I think there are a lot of reasons as I reflect on it why it didn't. I took the job before my fellowship. Mm -hmm. And so I thought I knew what I wanted out of my job. But until I was in a freestanding, independent children's hospital where people worked in teams, I thought that your job was just to go out and be a two-person pediatric orthopedic group within a large orthopedic department, which is what it was in Virginia. Mm -hmm. So I took a job that was almost exactly like that. But then I went to Scottish Rite and I thought, oh, yeah, this is what, this is the practice that I actually would excel in, yep. not that other practice. And so I made my best at it, but we, quite frankly, we didn't last more than, I think we left after 10 months yeah. after my first job, which is another piece of advice I give young people, which is... If it's not working, get out as yep. soon as you possibly can. You know, yep. cut and run. Yep. Even though there may be implications in terms of your sitting for your boards and the rest of it, it's really not going to work. Putting your head down and working more at it may not be worth it. Yeah. So anyway, so we left so, there. So and I went would to, you have done? Uh, I want to because yeah. uh, I want to get. There's so much I want to talk to, but yeah. to talk to you about. But would you have done that differently? I mean, I bet you gleaned actually a lot out of that experience. I did. Do you think you would have done something different? Are you glad in a way that you had that failure to help sort of build? Because obviously you've got a great situation now. Yeah. So, you know, I think I go back and forth. I put my family through a lot yeah. to move them twice in two years. You know, my wife is a saint and <laughs> to be able to put up with that stuff. And at the same all? time, yeah. 
you know, I had, you know, we had a child when I was a PGY three and as a five, so we still had toddlers and, you know, you know, dead up to our eyeballs. And with this didn't help with any of those things. So, I mean, I think from a family fallout standpoint, I would say, yeah, I would love to avoid it, but I sure as heck learned about what I wanted and how hard it was going to work at the next level at the next job to make it work. Yeah. And man, I went to Kentucky and luckily not only was I in a great clinical situation because I had other people who were Scottish rights. So they spoke my language. They were great people and great like clinical mentors. So they would help me when I, you know, at the beginning of my practice, but also no one had really kind of looked into that shrine database at that place and really written for a long time. And so I was able to then organize a lot of research efforts there, parlay their strengths of their gate lab, which was already strong. And then, like I said, walk across the street to the basic scientists and especially to the tissue engineers and knock on their door and say, I have this idea. I'm willing to help you find funding. Will you be willing to work with me and take me down this journey? Which is what really started my career. So I'm curious about that because we got asked a lot about that today. You know, we get asked a lot about this a lot. How, How do you start out a research program? And my suspicion is that Kentucky, probably like where or I was for the beginning of my career, wasn't didn't have sort of a natural tendency towards powerhouse research. And so yeah. you and Vish and you know you guys sort of built this kind of thing really at a real organic level from the bottom. How'd you guys go about doing it? Um, I mean, now you're in a situation that is a little bit more sort of a machine up in yeah. Mayo, but how'd you build that at, at the beginning? Well, you know, the shrine has some infrastructure to it, but at the time they needed ideas and physician champions to then use that infrastructure in a more effective way. They had a study coordinator that was funded by the hospital that would be willing to help you with the IRBs, all the stuff that keeps surgeons away from at least clinical research, Mm -hmm. all that paperwork, all of the committees you got to go through. And then I was, you know, the residents that were at Kentucky were extremely hungry to do research because the other parts of their residency program was very clinical focused, yet they all wanted to go to fellowships and they needed to publish. So many times people would be going to arthroplasty, but their only publication was when they were with peds with us. And so they were very hungry to get that stuff done while they were on service and they could, you know, chart dive. And I mean, I can't tell you, there was probably a span of five years. We took resident projects to the Academy, to POSNA, to SRS, and they really were just, we'd sit around, we'd have ideas, and the residents be like, I'll take that one. I'm going to do spine. I'm going to do arthroplasty. I'll do this hip one. And they were able to take advantage of those things. So, I mean, I think that we built it because we were interested. And I think that this is the hard part. If you don't have a research coordinator, kind of paperwork person, that's a huge obstacle. And I mean, for people that are out there that don't have that, then then I would say you got to try and figure out how to get one of those yeah. people. Even if you're just borrowing half time of somebody else, it is the difference maker on the clinical science side. The basic science side is a slow burn. Yep. And I have to tell you that you have to have five and 10 year goals in basic science research. In clinical, the beauty and the addiction of clinical science is that you can have an idea, you can chart dive, you know, get in a retrospective IRB in a month, chart dive in another month, and have a project written in the third month if you really wanted to. In basic science, I mean, it's a five to 10 year project of writing a grant, you know, doing the basic work in vitro and then taking it into an animal model and then trying to ask for a larger NIH 
project. And so you just have to have patience. My mentor, when I was doing that master's degree, it was all about, Todd, you got to be patient with basic science. It takes 10 times longer than you think in terms of the turnaround from idea to data right? Um, with that stuff. But, you know, to me, it was super important to try and do some of that stuff when we were able to accomplish that. So anyway. Well, and you can create a little bit of a research lineage when you get into one of those things, because the questions that you're asking and then answering sort of beget more questions that you can ask, maybe even more so than clinical medicine at time, because oftentimes you have spinoff projects, but you're, it's, they're, they don't always run together. So yeah. I think that that's a, a good thing to do. I think that's a great observation. I think that, you know, people ask, well, you do all this research. Why don't you then take one of your clinical projects and turn them into a... NIH level funded. I'm like, but it doesn't really, you know, we answer the question well enough most of the time with a retrospective review right. that we don't need a million dollar prospective randomized control trial to, you know, definitively answer it. I and mean, we get enough information that it's good for me. I think that the trap that I've seen with clinical medicine and I fall in it all the time is that, you know, I'm a curious person. I want the answers. I get the answers in an abstract and a presentation. And, and then the answer's the done for me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. I could care less about yeah. it anymore. Yeah. Right? Um, because I've already answered it in my brain what my question was. But then the painful part of taking that abstract and turning it into a manuscript yeah. is a huge leap for me. I mean, that takes a year or two, plus then you have a year or two of delay, even if it does get published. So, I mean, I would have to say that if I look at my old career overall, I have a lot more abstracts and ideas than I actually do have publications. Yeah. But maybe that's my attention span. But I, I just, I stop caring about it. Yeah. Um, and I'm on to the next. Like, give me, I've got these new questions that I want answered. Right. So, okay, so, uh, again, we're eventually we'll get back to the education oh, yeah. and stuff like that that we're talking But would, is there a, a way that you think you would do clinical research review and publication, the process differently if you had a way. In other words, if you look at it from our major literary bodies, whether it be Journal of Pediatric Orthopedics or Children's Orthopedics or JBDS or you know New England Journal, I agree. I think probably the biggest thing that the residents are surprised about is how long everything after the clinical question has been answered really in abstract form, you actually get something on paper to the point that that ends up being the thing that sinks most ships. Yeah. Do you think it could be done differently, better? Well, I mean, I personally think that the rigmarole we go through, the peer review process is in place to make sure that you don't have bad data, but, you know, people making decisions about data that's bad. Yep. So I think that a part of that is needed. So I would never do away with peer review. Yep. I think it's got to be a, a critical part of it. But do I have to think that you have to argue such minute points in a journal article like a lawyer would for their trial, you know, detail, detail, detail. I'm just not so sure. Like, I'd much rather read a whole bunch of extended abstracts that still defend it and have the right, you know, power analysis and all the statistical models, but it's way shorter. A, it helps me. And B, maybe then you don't, it, there's not this huge leap of it's going to take me six months to write that up and yeah. then another six months to argue every single point that a reviewer has to have. He or she. Yeah. We all are busy people. Do you get to all of the journals that are no. uh, in JPO? It's or, incredibly you know. difficult to keep up with that. And I think that the, you know, the review process is onerous because there are a lot of people, a lot of questions that I feel like I get asked in the review process. And I'm like, we'd have to redo the study to, to do that. Yeah. And so 
I feel like a little bit more of a conscious effort could be made to maybe make meaningful responses that could be answered or just say, you know what, this isn't for us, which is fine. Yeah. I'll go on to another journal, exactly. but don't drag it out for six months. I, no, mean, I it's totally like, agree it's with like, that. You know, be in the wrong relationship for a long time. Right. Um, so, so <laughs> when you were at UK, that was really the start of your, I would say, your leadership roles because you got involved really early, which is great at the personal level and at the academy level. I mean, really? going back through the stuff that, that you did, you've held a lot of really meaningful roles at Posing. You got an award for website development early on in your career. You know, that's been one of the things that's been so much fun has been getting involved with Posna at those levels. Tell me about sort of how you got started. Was that a plan from the beginning? Did you like that? Was that, you know, where you wanted to go? So, I mean, I think that I, you know, I feel at times that I was in the right place at the right time and that I clearly wanted to give to these groups. And I feel, you know, this is the plug for Posna people out there. I mean, I really feel like my family away from my family are my Posna peeps, right? I mean, they are the ones that I will do anything for. They ask me to handstand down the runway. I'm going to do that because they asked me to do it 10 times because I feel not only driven by the mission, but it's the people that I get to hang out with when I do those things. The way that I got started was that I had done some web development at the very beginning of HTML programming, when websites first came out, I learned how to program HTML and I created our website for the University of Virginia program. I have a feeling that's maybe why they actually asked me to stay on as the resident because <laughs> yeah. I was the only one that knew yeah. how to run that. And I remember the chairman very succinctly telling me, oh, this internet thing, it's just a fad. You know, this is not going anywhere. Why are you spending so much time on it? So I had a little bit of knowledge Lori Carroll was at Scottish Rite, and she was in charge of the communications council and asked me if I would help take over the website, because at the time, the person who was doing it, who had done it for a long time before that, was literally programming it in HTML still, yeah. and this was, whatever, 2005, right. so it needed a serious up, level, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, rehaul, and so I walked through the website development, We, you know, this was before... Our friend Brian Tompkins, yeah. you know, the internet guru yeah. was around. He, you know, he came behind me. And so I worked with the Devoid developer who's got that. So that was like my first taste of, hey, I can contribute meaningfully about one project to Posna and I could solve that one problem for them. And so I really, not solve it, but I could move that ball down yeah. the court. And I would encourage anybody who joins a national society committee or something grab a hold of a football that you're going to be able to move a yard or two don't just join a committee because you're going to join a committee take a hold of something and be able to accomplish it while you are in that committee because not only is it going to make you feel good that you spent time and you can accomplish something but also people around you start to notice hey nick was able to actually do some of this stuff in this vast sea of committee and look he actually made progress so the next time another opportunity comes up Let's ask Nick if he can do this. And I think that's really what happened to me in Posna. In the academy, it was kind of a interesting phenomenon. It was totally different. You know, the academy is this gargantuan, right. like hard to define. You know, I didn't, I didn't even really feel at times that, you know, that I fit somehow in this large morass of, you know, private, pedi- or private orthopedic surgeons. But as a resident, I volunteered to be a part of the resident committee at the time. And the funny thing is that it was it got turned into the resident committee to the resident and fellow committee, and then it turned into the resident fellow and candidate member committee. So I was on that committee for 10 years. 
Literally, I joined in 1999, and in 2009, I was still on that committee as the chairman. And the funny thing about it is I kept seeing what they wanted, which was they wanted resident engagement, figure out what the academy wanted with residency engagement. And it was natural to me to think about, well, why don't we get them a seat at the table? Here is an, a, a wide open opportunity. You say you want resident engagement, but just having a beer party for them at the academy is never going to solve anything. It's not... You're not going to get the information and many times they're going to blow you off to go party in New Orleans or wherever right. it is. So we created you know, this idea of a resident assembly. And then they asked me, the POSNA board asked me to go from my POSNA position to apply to the academy board. I said, well, I'm only going to go if I have a flag to fly. I'm not going to go up there and just kind of twiddle my thumbs and rah-rah for pediatric orthopedics. So luckily I had this backstory. And so when I was on the board, my goal in three years of being on that board was that I was going to get that dang resident assembly created. And we did. We got it created. Young Joe Kim followed me, another uh, pediatric orthopedist that was did amazing work and was able to take my idea and then basically, again, move that football and was able to create the resident assembly. And so now it's this active, interactive a way for the academy to talk to residents and for the residents to give their feedback to the academy. And so it, I was super proud of that when, that when we did it. Because, again, it was a tangible task that I could move. If you just put me on a committee, it's very hard for me to, like, just hang out, listen, what do I think? That's not really my shtick. I got to get something done. Right. The um, conference call with computer on your chest while you're surfing and not totally, paying attention. Totally yeah. not paying attention. Yeah. I mean, there's no nothing that makes me sadder than being on those phone calls yeah. at night when I could be with my family. Yeah. So if we're going to, if I'm going to be on a call, we're going to accomplish something. So I get a lot of kicks out of doing those national things because I feel like I pick projects like I can accomplish things. Post is another one of those things. Yeah. Peter Armstrong from Orthopediatrics approached me solo to try and organize a fellows course. And I said, I don't want to do it alone. And during a traveling fellowship, I met Jeff, Jeff Sawyer, who, by the way, this is another kick for Posnet. If anybody's out there who wants to get interested in Posnet itself, a traveling fellowship is the way to get noticed. More than any committee work, more than anything else, it puts you front and center in front of the board, in front of the presidential line. And on that traveling fellowship, you will make lifelong friends and collaborators like I have with Jeff. Jeff and I went on that 11 years ago. And here we are in Memphis running the same course together. So again, another great place to find people that are like you that you can get stuff accomplished with. And so POST is one of those things. And then recently they asked me to do IPOS, which is a huge, I mean, it's like way bigger than I ever thought I was going to be. I mean, you know, it's a multi, it's close to multi-million dollar meeting. Lots and lots and lots of moving parts. Super fun to organize because of the 75 faculty. I mean, yeah. it's tons of you pediatric orthopedists. Take a lot of pause yeah. and peeps. And, you know, it's a it's a much different, you know, I like the crowd at Post because they are my friends and they're my close group. IPOS is a little bit like the Three Ring Circus. Yeah. Like, I see you, I wave to you from the crowd, and I say, go get them, Tiger, because, you know, I'm not necessarily going to be sitting at a table talking, sitting at a, in your hotel room chatting with you over the computer, right. for example. That's just not going to happen. But, you know, the amount of people that it touches, the uniqueness of that meeting, uh, of course, I'm going to try and take that on and see how I do in that, in that role, too. Again, a tangible task that I feel like I can accomplish yeah. um, in that. Well, it's, I mean, it's the flagship for really all of orthopedics on an educational side. I mean, it, and it, 
gives you the ability, I haven't worked with you here, and I think the changes that we've made in the past couple of years have been really fun and brings basically 90% of the faculty back year after year. And so the ability to take something that's so impactful, put your mark on and move it forward, I think is, I mean, it's it's like a once in a lifetime opportunity, which is great. Yeah. So we usually have these big pillars of IPOS are trauma, which happens at the beginning, and then authors preferred techniques where the world's experts talk to you through you know, how do I do an I am nailing? How do I do a supercondylar? And then the middle is the wild card. What happens on Thursday? Last year it was global health. This year, my idea and my push was to do a teach the teacher concept. You know, in pediatric orthopedics, we always have learners around. Yep. How do we make that more effective? How do we incorporate it? How do we still do it and be home by 536 so we can be with our family? And on the flip side of that is, we're lifelong learners. How do we as 40-something-year-old guy <laughs> still stick information in my head and not be stuck in my ways? So, again, something different than usual, and I hope that that part of the meeting takes off and that we have it as a maybe not as big of a pillar, but have it as a section so that we can highlight not only how to do it for our members, but really highlight those people that do it well and learn from them. And we do that all the time for a VCR, for example. Right. Why are we not doing that for those people that are unbelievably good clinical teachers in their home programs in clinic or in the OR? We should be learning from them so that we all get better. Right. Like I said, we always have learners around. And there are times that I have challenging learners that I would love to know, well, how am I supposed to manage this person who may or may not be interested? The great thing about that meeting is there are a lot of people there who are going to be in the same boat. Yeah, yeah. And, and interested in it. So I let hope. me ask you a question that I asked John, but it's a little bit different concept, although certainly his involvement probably is somewhat related. How do you think we are going to be teaching IPOS in five or 10 years? What's going to change? What do you think the biggest changes in that? And then, you know, when I was talking with John about it, it was how, do, how does that translate to our home programs? How do we train differently in 10 years? I struggle with this a lot because I think that there are innovative ways that we can learn about adult learning that we're not applying right now. You know, it's still at IPOS a lecture-listener relationship. It's hard to move away from lecture learner when there are 500 people in the audience. You can flip that around when you turn that into a 30 or 40 person environment where you can do these things like flip the classroom and other things. And I think that our home programs, that is where we ought to be 100% of the time. We should completely move away in our home programs to lecture learner concept just because it's not effective. We know it's not effective. The residents stop listening. They retain maybe one, maybe, point out of a 45-minute lecture. At the most, you ought to be giving them five to 10-minute lectures with two or three bullet points, or more effectively, have them do reading. Then you show a case, and you go over the highlights and the points that they need to learn, much more so than, you know, kind of lecture learner. And IPOS, we're trying, but in the end, we are a surgical subspecialty. And in the end, you have to put your hands on stuff and do it. Now, do you have to put your hands exactly on stuff or could you do virtual reality things? I think that that will get more defined as the technology gets better. But in the end, that still isn't substitute for putting a real screw in a real bone, but maybe not in a live bone. So, I mean, I still think there's going to be a role for these Catavera courses as expensive and as difficult as they are. 
because they're really the only thing that even comes close to real life. Maybe virtual reality will get there, but the stuff that I've seen is like nowhere close to, I mean, it, it walks you through the steps. So you understand I need to do one, two, three, four, five, six, but it nowhere shows you like, oh, this tissue plane isn't exactly the way that it's supposed to be. For when I do my open hip reduction, there's some fat there. Now what do I do? Kind of concept. So I think in five years, we still are going to be teaching with our hands with some interactive way. You know, the other concept is that meeting altogether goes away. Like you could, you know, IPOS in theory could be bottled up and you could sit in front of your computer and then when you wanted to walk around the, you know, the virtual lab, you potentially could walk around and do some of this stuff. I still think that we are human. Yeah. I don't and know that our human, society is going to do that. that one. Yeah. And, and I like going to yeah. these meetings because I get to hang out with you. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> the, because, I mean, my favorite parts about going to these meetings are at this point in my career. I mean, yeah, I learned some stuff. But in reality, it's the dinners and the lunches I get to have with all my friends from across the country. Yeah. That, you know, as sad as it is in my home life, you know, I have friends that are around me, but they're not quite as, they don't understand my life as much as my Posner friends do. Right. And they don't understand my goals and aspirations and that have that shared common background and foreground as much. I mean, they may be other surgeons or other things, but it's still not the same. Right. You know, just like you and I can sit around and say, well, what is your life going to look like in 10 years from now? We can commiserate and say, yeah, I share that same vision. Yep. What can we, you know, how are we going to get there? Yep. Jeff and I have those talks all the time, which is, you know, in 10 years from now, what are we going to be doing? What kind of opportunities should we be asking for now so that it sets us up for that? And? Yep. Well, <laughs> I don't know what that looks like yeah. for me. I, I mean, the future for me is, you know, I'll move off IPOS. I would hope at some point they, you know, I would be asked to be, get in the leadership line of Pozna. Mm -hmm. I think after that, I don't, I, you know, that to me would be the fine end of my career if yep. I did that. That would be, I have no real further future aspirations beyond that. But again, I'm just going to keep giving to Pozna until they say it's time for you to stop giving to Pozna. Yeah. You know, um, because I love the society. I love the people. I love the people that actually help run it. I mean, they're all my friends too, you know, the non-MDs that, that are there. So, I mean, for me, I hope that they're still asking me to do things. But when I stop hearing the knock at the door, then I know that it's probably going to be time for me to start figuring out what my next phase of my life is going to be. Yeah. And so so let, let me ask you something. That I want to go back a little bit because you, it's, it's remarkable the volume of stuff that you've done within POS and, and also in the academy. And, and you, we talked about those unfortunate conference calls on committees that maybe you're not as involved with. How do you balance all of the stuff? Because you probably could be asked to be, knowing you're involved in a positive, on every committee. You could serve on every single committee and clearly not move any balls forward. Yeah. How have you chosen certain things? And how, I mean, are you good at saying no? Are you like Jack Flynn where you say you're very good at saying no? Or have you been able to glean like one thing out of each committee? To stay engaged, uh, I mean, what's your committee volume, if you will? Yeah. So, luckily, I got imposed, and I got put on committees early that I liked and I was interested in. But also in the academy, I just applied for any old committee, and I got on that one. Yet I was then able to do it. I think that I say no relatively well, although there are some SRS committees on that I've been ghosting, quite frankly, just because it ends up being too much of my, you know, my bandwidth gets too thin. 
and I feel a little bit bad. I don't like to make commitments if I don't think that I'm going to do it. I think being a regular committee member on some of the other committees, I've asked the chairman, okay, are you going to come up with tasks? You know, what are we going to try and do in a year? And can I have one of those tasks? I'm happy to take one of those things on. I try and find that thing that, you know, they're dropping hints that someone needs to do this, that, or the other thing. And I'll take that one thing on. Otherwise, I think just so much committee work is driven by the chairman and their effectiveness of running a committee meeting and then trying to clearly define goals for that year or two that they're going to be the chairman for it. At this point in my career, I'm not really a committee member anymore. I'm mostly committee chair. And I really love assigning, if you're on my committee, you are going to get this task. And I'm going to ask you every single time on the conference call, give me an update about the thing that I asked that that is now your baby that yep. you're going to care for. And I think that, you know, as all of us rise in societies and become more in the committee chairman position, that's the way you really get stuff done in this hierarchy. You take it, you know, you create a 10 task list of the things that you're going to actually do and you give people their jobs and then you hold their feet to the fire about that. Now, some people will respond and some people won't. It is volunteer work after all, they're not getting paid. They're taking time away from their family. But if they're truly committed to the society, then they're actually gonna show up and do the work. And then to me, those are the people you then promote to get up to the next level. Yep. As Brian Bryden told me, the, the gratitude for doing good on one committee is another committee. Exactly yeah. right. It's more work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for this work. Yeah. Here's some more. Here's some more work. But yeah. you, have, you have to be okay with it. Yeah. Like I said, you have to be, like Posna, I don't, I'm never bitter about any task that yeah. Posna asked me to do. Now, some of the other societies, like I said, I haven't been as committed to, and I feel you know bad for that, but it's one of those things where, you can only have a pile of rocks, you know, your pile of rocks. And if you start doling them out, it's no longer a pile. It's just spread so thin, you know? So anyway. I want to touch briefly because we have talked a little bit about the differences in jobs, but now you're in a new place. Yeah. And it's a pretty unique place. And it's definitely a little bit of a paradigm shift, I'm assuming, from where you were in Kentucky. Certainly great people there and great people at Mayo. But you've probably learned a little bit of a new philosophy and there's a different mentality with regards to how you take care of patients, what clinical expectations are, probably differences in resources. You know, Noelle and I were fellows together, so I know what kind of person she is to work with. Tell me a little bit about sort of this new experience you've been on and what's been great about it. And, you know. Yeah. So I did not grow up in the Midwest. I mean, I spent time in, Mich in Michigan, but I did not really grow up in the Midwest. So the Mayo Clinic... In terms of Midwest brand name, has this unbelievable reputation of being able to solve your complex medical troubles in a single visit. So they parlay their multi-specialty clinic and they can organize it so that you come in, you fly in, you visit, you see everyone. You see the gastroenterologist, you see the neurologist, you see your cardiologist, you see everybody all at once. To be honest, I didn't know any of that stuff when I was looking for jobs and when I went and interviewed, I based my base the next job selection on the people that were going to be my partners because it was really important to me in Kentucky that they were good people. But I felt like, I mean, not only were they good, but I kind of I wanted to take my research to the next level. We needed a new challenge in terms of some of that stuff, and so we moved. The most interesting thing that happened to me is that when I went to the Mayo Clinic, they spent two weeks of teaching me about what the Mayo Clinic is. So I went to a class every day 
And I learned not only the Mayo Clinic values, I know how the clinic got started. And I, I mean, I was indoctrinated. It was the same thing as if, you know, you went to become a part of a society or a secret society or whatever. But I was indoctrinated about this is the way that we take care of patients. This is the way, these are the expectations for you. This is our backstory. And this is why all those things wrap up into one single bow. I mean, it's, you know, they talk about the three shields at Mayo, you know, clinical care, research, and education. Those are their shields. And everybody knows the three shields. Everyone. Yeah. Even down to the people that are helping clean your room, they know the three shields. And that had never happened to me before. I had worked in many different, you know, four institutions at that point. I was basically said, here are your keys, go to work. And that had never happened to me except at the clinic. And so the expectations of patients when they come to see us is a lot different than they were previously. The Shrine, they were happy to see us because of the Shriner system. At the Mayo, they have this expectation, this unbelievable at times, but usually on target expectations of, what do you mean you can't get an MRI today? Right, this is uh, Mayo. This is Mayo. Yeah. I, what do you mean I can't get my IR, my radiology IR under sedation tomorrow? You know, but I mean, amazingly, you call and it happens. And, it happens. <laughs> and so yeah. you call the consultant and they're like, yeah, we'll fit it in. Just like people call me and they're like, yeah, you know, her aunt Joan is here for cardiologist, but you know, little Jimmy, his foot is hurting. Can you just see him today? And the answer is always yes. Yeah. Always yes. Which leads to some long days at times and long evenings, but not terrible. And we see, you know, people fly to Mayo from all over. So we get a, a diverse uh, patient population, much more so than I thought when we were moving to Rochester, Minnesota, which if anybody's not been there, it's basically a cornfield. Yeah. I mean, it literally is a cornfield. The biggest monument in town is a water tower that's shaped like a piece of corn. And so everybody knows the piece of corn water tower because that's what the, the city represents. So it is an amazing tale, the Mayo Brothers creating this. The whole backstory is on PBS now. And you, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but even I, we went to the opening that they had in Rochester. It was, it's amazing. So when I went there, the other parts and pieces, you know, it is a machine in terms of research. I mean, they have lots of people focused. They have lots of uh, kind of core facilities for you to get things done. But it is, at times, like a large bureaucracy. And you have to understand what it takes to function in a large bureaucracy. We are all salaried. So it makes no difference to anyone. If you work a little harder, that's just a little bit harder that you're asking me to work. I don't get paid anymore for doing this task for you. So it ends up being a cult of personality so that you can get things done. So you have to convince them with your charm and sometimes, well, sometimes your charm and mostly your data about why this is good for patients. And if you can make that argument, then you usually get what you want to get. Research, you have to be a little bit craftier. I've become consultant, you know, I've become a consultant with some of my, with some companies because they have a mechanism by which I can take that money as a consultant and turn it into our research account so that then helps pay for our research coordinator. You know, though all those things, I can't use clinical dollars. The clinic doesn't allow us to use clinical dollars to then write somebody's salary line out for a researcher. So we end up having to try and come up with ways to do that. And consulting is one of those ways. Yeah. 
but they have that, but they have a whole IRB specialist. They have all these other things. And the cool thing is that we had some patent ideas and they are all over that. If Mayo Clinic is known for one thing, they love technology and they like to invest in technology and they like to take the technology ideas of their employees and then turn them into, you know, large scale, whatever. So there's lots of like Dr. Courier's produced. He's a spine surgeon. Mountaineer is is his whole thing. And, you know, so they like to take those ideas and turn them into reality. And so we, you know, Dr. Larson and I work with our vertebral body tethering. We had some ideas. Literally, we met with the patent people. They wrote, I mean, we wrote it up. They had lawyers there the next day. We then submitted our preliminary patent. And then they were like, okay, let's go to the companies. And then where I previously had worked, they'd be like, uh, what are we doing? What what's yeah, yeah, the, yeah. what is the procedure? Yeah. Uh, we've never done this before. I don't know what you're doing. And so, I mean, that kind of stuff where it's not it's not my, their first rodeo. They've already done this a hundred times within the orthopedic department. I just need to get in line, and then get my voice, have my idea be the best idea in line. Which you know, I like that challenge yeah. because then I have to really make my idea tight. It can't just be this you know quasi yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever. It's got to be pretty tight then. So I love that part of it. And then, you know, I love my partners that I work with, again, are great clinicians. They take on some cases that are, you know, completely off the chain in terms of their complexity because they're here for their cardiac transplant. Oh, yeah, by the way, they have significant scoliosis. So you're going to be like half on ECMO, half doing the spine surgery. You know, I mean, it's just totally crazy. Yeah. You know, last summer we had this child come in who had gotten hit, whose aorta was transected, but was just barely, the intima was still in place so that the child was still alive. And so while I was doing the X-Fix, they flew them from the middle of nowhere to us because Joe Durrani, who's the cardiac surgeon, could do the cold water ECMO and the repair while I was doing the fasciotomies for her tibia fractures and X-Fixes in the last position. So, I mean, this is that kind of stuff to me makes me proud of, of working there. Um, and it's, you know, fun. I think the biggest downside is that we have yet to kind of establish a fellowship, you know, and in Pete's ortho, that's kind of cash, you know, that's your legacy for the future. Just like Scottish, right. Those guys have, you know, us to think about for the future. We have our residents, but you know, maybe one or two out of the last five years end up going into pediatric orthopedics. I'm very dedicated to resident education and I love teaching the residents, but in terms of pediatric orthopedic legacy, it'd be great to have a fellowship. Yeah. And so we're kind of, we're tipping our toe in the water a little bit with Gillette to kind of share a fellow. This upcoming year will be the first time we're doing that. But again, we're pretty dedicated. I mean, we have 65 residents overall. So we have a lot of residents and, you know, I feel a significant obligation to, you know, if they're going to go out into practice, I need to make sure that they know how to pin a supracondylar and, you know, fix some of these these things that they're going to run into. Although most of them aren't going to be going out into practice. And, no, I know. Yeah, most not, of them, not coming out of Mayo. No, they're yeah. going to go into subspecialty academic yeah. work. Yeah. But, you know, the interesting thing, I still, there are a few that end up in private practice, and I, those are the ones I get all the phone calls for. Yeah. They're the only ones, because the academic guys, they're like, I got a Pete's person. I'm not yeah. ever touching that. But these other folks who do, say, a sports or a joints fellowship, and they just go join a large multi-specialty practice when they're on call, yeah. they still got to take Pete's call, and they're calling me with, I don't know what to do with this. Please help me. Yeah. Like, 
Awesome. That's a fun part. I love yeah, that yeah, part. Yeah. I get the text message. I love medicine by text message that way because <laughs> I can help them and they feel good. I've even gotten some flow shots by text yeah, message. Is this good? Is this, is this good? good? Is, is this, this going to be okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you sure it's going to be okay? Talk me off the ledge. I've done FaceTime. That's <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I like that. So, I like well, listen, for the listeners, Todd and I have a dinner to get to, but this, as expected, was spectacular. I could do two more hours. Uh, we probably run out of memory, but I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you. It, it's always a pleasure to sit down with you. And I appreciate the opportunity. I, my biggest joy in all of this is getting to know people. Yeah. Uh, I think that, you know, I have some biases about where technology has taken us in terms of that. And it always recharges my batteries when I can sit down with people like you and be able to chat real life. You know, this is my life. Yep. And as much as people get excited about their job, it, for me, it's more than my job. This is my reality is I love being able to donate my time and do, do research and take care of kids. I mean, it's like I couldn't have written a better script yeah. for my life than this. It's the best job. It is the best job on yeah. the planet. Yeah. Well, yeah. Anyway. this is awesome. And hopefully we'll get to do it again in the I'd future. I'd love to do that.